Good morning, I'm Alicia. I'll be reading the text for this morning so you can follow along with me uh, in Hebrews 11:32 through 40, either on the screens or in your Bibles or the scripture journals that Claude mentioned earlier. It says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and of the prophets, who, the, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received their dead back by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging in even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Thanks, Alicia. Morning. That's what I expected. <laughs> it's, uh, it's early. <laughs> Probably feeling the fact that you lost a little bit of sleep and um, wondering, man, I wonder if I should have actually been here today, but the good news is that my dad provided a great reason for you to be here uh, yesterday when he posted a picture to Facebook. Uh, I don't know if we can, we can see that there. That's, uh, that's young Eric. Um, he's uh, 1987, the coolest kid in his class. I, just, I, I assume you know that, of course. My, uh, my question is, why did my cheeks need to see? Why did why the glasses go all the way down there, you know? Uh, the story behind this, though, is I wore glasses. I was talking to my mom about this yesterday. I wore glasses for way less than a year, six months maybe, you know. And um, in that time, I got my picture taken at school, got family photos done, my baseball photo. <laughs> wearing these glasses here, you know. Uh, and the truth is, though, that I did not need them. I didn't, I didn't need them. My Parents wear glasses. My sister wears glasses. Most people in my family wear glasses. And um, I can't remember if I thought it would be cool to have glasses or if my parents said, you probably need glasses. Let's go. And so I went to the eye doctor. And if you have glasses or you've had this experience before, uh, in I was nine years old. You can get that off the screen, by the way. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, nine years old, I was a little bit nervous to, um, you know, kind of speak up for myself and tell the doctor what I'm really seeing or experiencing. And so he was very quick with, uh, with this test here. So he would give me two lenses and say, which one is more clear, this or this? And I'd be like, can you go back to the first one? And it seemed like, oh, all right, this or this? I'm like, oh. And then he finally goes, okay, A or B? And so I'd go, uh, A. And then he'd do it again, A or B? B. And I would just say random A's and B's because I was <laughs> so scared that uh, I was going to make him more mad or whatever. I didn't want to speak up my, for myself. And so uh, that was the result right there of uh, not speaking up uh, for myself. Uh, the funny thing was, 
I saw exactly the same with my glasses on and with my glasses off. So uh, it might have just been regular glass. I have no idea. But I wore them for a few months, and I just said, I don't need these, you know. And I'm sure I went back to the eye doctor and had an actual test done and haven't worn glasses since. So maybe it was for this illustration right here. You never know. But uh, <laughs> it's a great reminder, though, that when I'm too afraid to speak up for myself, uh, there are people in my life and in my world that uh, remind me that I should speak up for myself. And I want to kind of get existential for a second, if I can. Uh, that's what the modern-day superhero is for. If you follow Spider-Man uh, or the Marvel um, you know, pantheon of movies there. They're all like, uh, people are in distress. So, uh, the superhero comes in, does what the, the regular person can't do, saves the day, goes through a little bit of adversity at the time, but then by the end of the movie, hey, we're all wrapped up. Maybe a couple bruises and scars, but uh, we're good to go from there. Uh, Spider-Man is our local East Coast superhero. He's the guy that I grew up with, you know? And I, what I loved about Spider-Man is that you could see a kid walking down the street, just some random side street, and Green Goblin would come down, you know, and want to, like, harm the kid for some reason. Who, who knows? Uh, and Spider-Man saw everything, and he would swoop in, and, and he would stand in the gap for that kid, you know, and, and save the day. Uh, and I thought that was pretty cool because that was in New York City and I've heard of New York City as a kid and I've gone to New York City since and like that could happen to me. Uh, but the question as I got older and as my kids started getting into superheroes and thinking like, that's not realistic, you know, and in real life those things don't happen. I want to start off with a question that seems very, very weird, very odd, uh, but it, I promise it plays into Hebrews 11. The question goes like this. Why do our heroes always win? Why do our heroes always win? In other words, why does our culture write narratives of heroes who make everything right despite all odds? Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, we have a genre in literature called the tragic hero. You guys have known people that are supposed to be heroes that die doing, uh, being heroic and all those kind of things. But uh, for the most part, the hero in our, in our world, especially in children's uh, narratives, uh, saves the day, wraps it up nice and neat in that 30 minutes or the two hours or by the end of the book or whatever media you're looking at there. Uh, and even though things aren't always perfect in the middle of the story, they all work out in the end. Uh, it'd be a really different movie if Thanos had kept all the Infinity Stones and uh, he would have won. Would have been like if Darth Vader would have killed Luke, that would have, eh, wouldn't have worked out as well, you know, for episodes five, six, seven, eight, and nine, right? Uh, if you're older, uh, like me, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, you've seen Zorro. Zorro gets shot at by 50 bullets at once, and he's dodging them all. I was like, hey, what's up now, you know? Uh, if, he got, if he got a bullet in the head, like in the middle of a, uh, that would be bad. Why, why do our heroes always win? And as we get into Hebrews 11, I think it's because we're living in a world that knows that there are wrongs in the world. The things are messed up. The things are not as they should be uh, and is desperate for things to be made right. We know that there are issues that are bigger than the things that we can solve on our own. And so we create these narratives uh, of, of things that, that need to be dealt with that get dealt with either uh, in a way that's nice and tidy or in a, some kind of supernatural way. Uh, the world is very scary and confusing. And the older I get, the more confusing it actually is. I don't get my questions answered. I find that I have more questions as to why from time to time. So in real life, 
those issues are messy and they're complicated, and so uh, we have to reassure kids, hey, kids, it's okay. We don't really know what absolute truth looks like, but here's Spider-Man. He'll rescue you. He'll, he'll save the day, you know. Um, but as we begin to look at Hebrews 11 yet again, we see that there are heroes of faith that we're looking at today, but they are much different than the ones that are being expressed in our culture. The Bible commends them for their faith, sure, but their heroics, they don't often result in the things that we think that they should. Sometimes we think that heroes need to have everything neatly wrapped up and kind of come to a conclusion by the end of their life or by the end of the season or the end of the chapter, <laughs> whatever it would be. Uh, but that's just not the case as we end chapter 11 uh, this morning. So how do we reconcile the fact that uh, in many cases, the opposite of what we expect to happen actually happened uh, for these men and women of faith? How do we reconcile that with uh, what we're hoping for with our own life? Because if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when we just... Uh, our lives don't result in the things that we think that they should either. You know, we go through adversity, we go through hard times, and on the other side of it, we're not like, oh, there we go. It all worked out for good, right? We're still left with questions and maybe even more confusion than we had when we started off. Our heroes may win, but in real life, no one's coming to rescue us, it feels like. What I want to do is I want to walk through this passage today and kind of work through uh, how God uh, takes difficulty and brokenness and redefines it uh, for those, uh, redefines those challenges, excuse me, uh, kind of for his glory um, and uh, for some interesting and unique uh, ways to, to kind of clear things up. What I want to do is look through verses 32 through 34 again, if we can. Uh, it says this, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. That is the definition of a hero. These three verses right here. Wow. Verse 32, we, we focus on six men, all with very heroic stories in their own right. And I kind of hate it that the writer of Hebrews says, I don't have time to tell these men's stories, right? Because they're great stories. They're heroic stories. They're stories of uh, adversity and yet triumph in the end. And they're stories of what we think of when we think of our heroes in the, in the modern sense of the word here. Uh, the first four, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, uh, these were heroes in the period of the judges. They lived in a time uh, when the Bible says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, so we have these four men who uh, live in a world where everyone's just doing whatever they want, whatever they think is right. Uh, chapter 6 and 17 of Judges say that uh, uh, pretty specifically. And so we think, oh, here are four men who did the right thing. You know, they, they wanted to follow their own hearts, but they did the right thing, and they rose up above their culture so that they were rewarded and they were honored because of the good that they did. Then we have the last two people, David and Samuel. These are two men who overcame humble circumstances and beginnings to perfectly illustrate the good heroes of their day. Now, we have a picture here of people who rose up, like I said, uh, but they certainly weren't perfect. So, Hebrews isn't saying, like, these are perfect men and women who do everything right all the time, and because they have faith, God really rewarded them. No, 
uh, writer of Hebrews is being very honest and very real with us that uh, we can pinpoint the flaws of all six of these men in verse 32 here, and yet their faith allows them to do all the incredible great things uh, that we already saw. Made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, escaped the edge of the sword, all these things. It's pretty amazing to hear all the cool things that these six guys did and Here's the deal. If we don't see these heroes in their proper context, what happens is that we might think that this is how our lives need to look too. That maybe I can be like Gideon. Maybe I can be like Samson. Uh, That if I just kind of do what's right in God's eyes, when everyone else is doing what's right in their own eyes, then maybe I can uh, make the right choices and have all these good things happen to me so that I will see my victories won. And I will see my foreign armies routed and, and put to flight. Uh, that would be an improper reading of the text and I think an improper understanding of our own lives. I think all of us in this room have lived long enough to realize that's just not how life works here. Uh, This is how uh, our superheroes look in the 21st century. Uh, They might not represent faith and far-sighted faith, but it does represent the superhero movies that we see and the books that we read, they rise out of difficult or tragic situations. They said yes and did the right thing when everyone else was doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, the results of their hard work uh, was um, powerful. Uh, all these tangible things that you can see and that you want to inspire to. And if we stop right there, we can think, me too. If I just trust in my hard work enough, uh, God is going to let me reap the benefits of my hard work. The other thing about this is that we can see God uses imperfect people. He doesn't really care how I get there as long as the results are what what he wants to see. And that's good for me too because I'm imperfect. And so what I can take out of this, what I can extrapolate from this is like, it's okay if I'm a sinner. It's okay. God doesn't really care how much I mess up or uh, how many wrongs I commit or even how I treat other people because in the end, what he really cares about is that those armies are routed or that I become powerful in battle uh, or that uh, the people that need justice get justice. There's some really good and powerful words in this account here. But uh, God is actually, if we just read it at face value, we can be tempted to think that God is only interested in the righteous results of my life. He doesn't care about uh, the little details of it all. He just cares about, and we're talking about it now, farsighted. He cares about the end result there. But that's not farsighted faith. Nor is it an accurate picture of God's will for your life. But like I said, that might be what our superheroes look like in the modern sense of the word. The hero wins, and it doesn't matter how he got there to do it. And the truth of the matter is, is whether it's fiction writing or it's the business world, uh, we call that kind of seeing the big picture. Or we, see, we say that's results-based. I'm, I'm all about the results, you know. Um, but we know that that's not what farsighted faith is. We realize that farsighted faith has much more to do with the everyday actions uh, that would not be what's right in our own eyes, but what God wants from my one and only life. And we'll see exactly why the writer of Hebrews uh, starts off with these guys in the section here, and he begins to connect the dots to, to what farsighted faith looks like. Uh, but we're going to move on to verse 35, uh, because this is a verse that really gets to the heart of what maybe you and I think Christianity should look like. So verse 35 says, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 
And here's the deal. If we're honest with ourselves, this verse uh, is more what we think Christianity would look like, could look like, or should look like. Uh, whether you've grown up in church and you, you said a prayer when you were a little kid and you've loved the Lord ever since, or you've come into this room as a skeptic or listening online uh, trying to disprove someone's faith, uh, probably all of us at one time or another, or maybe still now, uh, have this idea that Christianity is, if I just sacrifice in the here and now, it'll be worth it because somewhere down the line, God is going to reward me for my faith. Uh, I'll be better in the end if I can just endure a little bit right now. So if I'm willing to lose something now, my faith will see that past that loss where I'll get a really sweet return on my investment, right? Kind of like a, a spiritual stock market, you know? Uh, I, I have to write a check to Jesus now. You know, he's my spiritual stock broker, you know? Uh, but the more that I put in, the more sacrifice I make and the investment that I give, the more he's going to owe me later on. And uh, when I get into a bind, when I get in trouble, when I need something back, then I can just pray. And when I pray, God's got to write that check to me and give it back with interest. Because when I'm ready to do it, then it's my money, right? It's, it's my faith. It's mine. Now, I invest in the stock market, and um, you know I think that's important. But I've never invested because I really believe in that company. I don't care if I lose all my money. I just want to invest in them. No, I invest in the stock market because later on, I'm going to get something back. But here's the deal. If I try to project that onto my relationship with Jesus, uh, I'm going to uh, be very, very sad in this life, both here and later on. Uh, I'm not trying to make fun of the hope uh, that faith brings by any means. Sometimes we do have to navigate this awful, tragic, difficult world, uh, and that's all we have to hold on to, the hope that uh, God will raise our dead circumstances to life again and that the pain that we're experiencing now uh, will result in a, a better life for sure. But, man, if our motivation to trust Jesus in this life is to make sure uh, that we have a better life later on for ourselves, we're missing the gospel. I think we're missing the gospel entirely. Uh, I'll say it this way. Christianity isn't a way to leverage difficulty for our own personal gain later on. I want to say that again because that wrecked me. <laughs> and uh, it, it's doing a work even today in my heart. Christianity is not a way to leverage difficulty for our own personal gain later on. Because if it were, Christianity would be a, a program or it would be a worldview uh, or it would be just a, a great way to think about life as we navigate through difficult times. Uh, but it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. I, I've struggled with this understanding of faith uh, for much of my past. I was a, a youth pastor for 10 years, and uh, that's what I believed I was doing. I believed that I was serving God, and every time I would um, preach to students or I would go on a youth retreat or something, I was writing a check to Jesus, my spiritual stockbroker. I'd hand that in and be like, hey, there you go. I could have been home watching movies, but instead I was with kids, you know, so you're welcome, Jesus. Uh, and so I would go through life, and uh, we were praying for children. Can I have children for a while? Finally had twins, and just we were praying very uh, legitimate prayers, very honest prayers. I think they, there was nothing wrong with the prayers we were praying uh, for healthy kids, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, when one of my twins was born with uh, cerebral palsy, I said, God, I wrote all these checks for a decade <laughs> to you, right? You're supposed to, uh, when I pray, it's like me asking you for that money back, 
and you're supposed to give me what I want back. How dare you? How dare you not answer my prayer? In fact, go against what I was specifically praying, God. I don't think I can trust you. In fact, I don't think I like you very much in this moment because I had worked hard for Jesus. I deserved to be compensated for that in the spiritual realm. I wasn't doing it to get money. I was doing it for something more, right? And so if Jesus didn't understand that, we might have to part ways, you know? It was only when I grasped the truth of the gospel that I realized, wow, I'm, I'm a scumbag. <laughs> I am a sinner. The gospel says that I deserve punishment for my sin, uh, and there was nothing that I could do to secure a better life for myself. There was nothing I could do uh, to make my life better spiritually. Uh, I was in, in my trespasses and sins, the way Paul says it in the New Testament. And uh, Jesus saw me when I was his enemy, when I was at my worst, and I was uh, at odds with him. And he loved me anyway. He loved me so much that he died in my place so that I could be with him forever and, and ever. And when I realized, man, it's not about I, I, you know, I scratch his back, he scratches mine, I realized that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Then I began to realize, wow, everything that I have is from him. The breath in my lungs right now is from him. And even though I had grown up in church, I began to understand the gospel as an adult for the very first time. Now, I think the, the author of Hebrews is beginning to express that as uh, he or she goes through uh, this narrative from 32 to 40. Actually, from the beginning of the chapter all the way through 40, it's definitely worth looking at. Uh, but as we go through this passage in particular, uh, and with this in mind, I want to look at verses 36 through 38, because we're beginning to boil down. We're beginning to go from uh, the hero that sees the results, the righteous results of their faith, all the way to something that looks a lot different than that. So verses 36 to 38 say, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All right, so here's where it gets real. Here's where it begins to look like uh, maybe what we don't want it to look like. Because Hebrews lists three verses of difficulties, but then never lists the rewards that the people received for enduring this difficulty. So in this text, we have Samson and David, and then we have these women who had enough faith to see a better life in the end. Uh, now we're at these guys here who go through torture. They went through the fire, but they don't see what's in it for them. And we're beginning to get a glimpse of what the author of Hebrews is actually trying to say uh, to us in this hall of faith here. Uh, they didn't get to see what was in it for them. Now, my question after reading those verses is, how does that buoy my faith, you know? How am I supposed to have faith if I don't get rewarded for it, if I don't get to see the reward for it? It's kind of like investing in the stock market, but then never getting a return on that investment giving your money away, right? It's like going through difficult times, but getting no tangible benefit for it at all. And so my question is this, what if God allowed the brokenness of this fallen world uh, to touch us in such a way that we never saw the brokenness restored this side of heaven? What if? What if God allows the brokenness of our lives to not be restored until we see him face to face one day? Would that be okay with you? 
Maybe you're thinking, well, I guess it's got to be okay. There's nothing I can do about it. But my question is, how does that make you feel? <laughs> I'm not here standing up here saying, you know what, you, sh- you should feel great. You should feel really good about your suffering and your misfortune and all the bad things in your life because don't worry, God's going to take care of it eventually. You might not see it, but don't worry. Just be really happy about it. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that we live in a world where uh, the hero always wins, where at the end of the movie, uh, right is prevails, right? And wrong is vanquished. But what if that doesn't look so much like your life? your story, your relationships, your sacrifice? What if God allows the brokenness of this fallen world to touch us in a way that doesn't get restored, that we don't get the happy ending the way we want it in the season that we want it? The writer of Hebrews says this in 39 and 40. He says, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Hmm, that is a really weird verse. They were commended through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, verse 39 holds one of the most powerful self-reflection thoughts in the entire New Testament. It goes like this. Am I okay with experiencing everything that these heroes experienced and yet not being rewarded for it before I die? Because that's what it sounds like Hebrews is saying. You know, God promised them something. They, they had faith despite uh, crazy odds in their life, but they didn't receive what was promised. Now, the other thing this verse holds is one of the most un, uh, misunderstood statements in the entire Bible because it sounds a lot like God doesn't keep his promises. Sounds like God made a promise to someone and then said, just kidding, <laughs> I took it back. Or that maybe they didn't have enough faith. And God had a conditional promise for them, you know. Hey, I promise that this will work out for my glory and for your joy. Unless, unless you don't have enough faith. Unless you don't do everything the way I want you to. Unless you commit that sin, then I have to go back on my promise. What was it? What, what made these men not receive what was promised? Because I don't want to go through it. I want to receive what's promised. So what is it? They were commended through their faith, but they didn't receive what was promised. Here's the deal. When we look at this verse and we think, man, I can't believe that God would not come through on his promise. We're looking at the scripture through a very individualistic lens. Uh, If you read it that way, though, you're not alone. You're not alone in that. The world we live in is a very individualistic world, right? We're conditioned to believe that my life is lived for me. Right? And so if I want, I can give you some of my time and I can say, yeah, you're welcome. And if I'm feeling nice and if you're really lucky, then I can give some of my money to that soup kitchen down there and I can give some of my money to that church over there uh, or some other worthy cause and I can feel really good about the fact that I gave, I gave of mine, what belongs to me, to the world. And when a person approaches the Bible, they place that view of their lives onto the text. It's just a natural thing in our world. And suddenly the incentive to have faith is for personal gain that you're going to experience later on. So the question is, did God break his promise to these people because they didn't receive it before they died? 
I love how the commentator F.F. Bruce uh, puts it. I'm going to read what he says. He said, None of them received the promise in the sense of witnessing its fulfillment. Fulfillment, excuse me. They lived and died in prospect of a fulfillment that none of them experienced on earth. Yet so real was that fulfillment to them that it gave them power to press upstream against the current of the environment and to live on earth as citizens of that commonwealth whose foundations are firmly laid in the unseen and eternal order. I love that. That is so good. God is so faithful uh, that even though these people said, I, I believe that God's promise is real and so true, and I'm going to live as though it's true in the here and now, even if I never see it. Because I know that it is true, that it is firm, that it's tangible, not in the physical way right here, but in a way that I will see its fulfillment, whether here or with him in glory. That one, I will live today like that promises for me, even if I never see it. Even if I don't get the reward for it personally, because my life is not about me. Because my story, my, my circumstance is written for something else, for something greater than myself. When we live in this culture, in this world, it is so easy. I'm not pointing the finger because I do it all the time. So easy to say, I have faith because I know that God's going to reward me for my faith. <laughs> when I don't understand the gospel, I don't realize the gospel is about Jesus doing the work that I can never do, and now everything that I have belongs to him. So it's not my life anymore. It's not my money anymore. It's not uh, my time or my, my talent anymore. It all belongs to him. God is faithful, and when you give your life to him, you give him your trials too. You even give him your trials so that he can use them however he wants. And man, I uh, am so guilty of the, uh, following after the idol of comfort. You know, like life isn't the easiest, you know, for me by any means. And it's not the hardest either, <laughs> for sure. But those moments where I'm, I'm really struggling, I'm thinking, man, I could, I could use a nap right now. In fact, uh, I could use a nap for like a week. That'd be really, really nice, you know. Uh, and I begin to think about, hey, how can I live my life so that I'm the most comfortable? rather than how can I leverage my one and only life for his glory? Would you be okay with God blessing someone else through your trials? This is a great litmus test. I'm not saying that this is why you're going through the the trial of your life right now. But I'm asking you, would you be okay with God blessing someone else through your trials? What I mean by that is, uh, would you be okay with allowing your experiences to be used by God in such a way that the uncomfortable, uh, the painful, the, uh, the tough things that you're going through uh, would demonstrate his glory or power or character or nature for someone else to see? Or are you saying, nope, that's off limits? No. God, you can have my life, but you just can't have my trials. You can have the good, you can have my free time, you can have my excess cash, but you can't have that. That's too hard. That's too painful. Now, this flies in the face of our culture of rugged individualism, kind of, right? Because my life is for me, so my trials are for me. And God can't use me for somebody else, that's just mean. That's just cruel. And honestly, if we don't understand the gospel, then it is mean and it is cruel. And we are tempted to think that God isn't fair or that he's not trustworthy. Because if we see God as kind of apathetic to our, our circumstances or aloof, 
Like, here I am, God. I'm, I've been praying to you for a long time, and it feels like you just don't see me. Then when we go through our trials, and they're not answered immediately, our, our prayers, then it feels like God is a jerk. And if I say, are you okay with God using your trials to benefit someone else? Then you're saying, no, because God's a jerk. He doesn't care about me. He only cares about them. Why would I serve a God like that? Or maybe we think of God as overbearing, and he's always looking for ways to teach us a lesson, you know. And so then my trials, my circumstances, my pain um, are a result of an uncaring judge who just wants to see me punished for the wrong things that I've done. And so when I ask, are you okay with God using your trials, your circumstances, to teach a lesson either to you, to someone close to you, then no, no, because I need a God who cares about me. I don't want, I don't want to serve that God. I don't want that God to take my, my life, my one and only life, and use it for something different than myself. But the gospel declares that when we were at our very worst, when we hated God and we wanted to cut him out of our life and we're actively trying to do so, he sent Jesus to enter our world to live the perfect life that we could never live and then die the sacrificial death in our place on our behalf. Think of it this way. Jesus willingly experienced the trials of being a human, not thinking about what was in it for him, right? He didn't do it so that he could get a pat on the back a little bit later on. No, he did it for you. He did it for me. Jesus had far-sighted faith. That's profound to think about. Uh, that those trials that he would experience would honor his father and would bring about the promise of eternal life. Now, that's the kind of God worth giving our lives to. And I would hate for you to, to walk away from this time, this passage here, and say, man, God is kind of mean. But, like, I guess he knows more than I do, and so I guess I have to, like, be okay with my current lot in life. Now, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that he loves us so much that he gave us his one and only son so that when we see our lives through the lens of the gospel, we can then read scripture through an eternal perspective. We don't have to settle for this idea that our spiritual stockbroker is not coming through or that uh, we need to be rewarded with the same amount of sacrifice that we have put in to our lives, right? We all of a sudden see our lives as uh, an eternal story. Uh, and our, our trials, although not minimized, we see them in light of the hope of the gospel. So here are a few promises that the Word of God talks about, a few principles that the Word would tell us. And if we're thinking, well, I guess... We don't, God, we don't get what God has promised us, then we're missing the point. So Psalm 95, these aren't projected, by the way, but Psalm 95, or excuse me, Psalm 91, verses 5 through 7 say, You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. And without an eternal perspective, what the gospel can do, we can think, yeah, right. It feels like 10,000 are coming against me right now. God, I guess your word isn't true. But if we see what the, that Jesus has already fought on our behalf, we say, man, when we go through the darkness, we go through the nighttime, we realize we have an advocate with the Father who's pleading on our behalf. And Psalm 91 verses 10 and 11 say, No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And we can look, and without that far-sighted faith, we can see our trials uh, as uh, the response to that verse. We can say, yeah, right, God, look at my life. 
You have let evil befall me. You have let a plague uh, kind of come near my dwelling. I've been praying for my, my child for years. You've let that plague come near my dwelling. I guess you're not trustworthy, God. But if we look through the lens of the gospel and we say that Jesus bore our suffering, he bore our burdens so that there will be a day uh, where our children will run and they'll leap and they'll play in perfect health, then we can say, I'm hanging on to that hope because of the faith that God provides. In the New Testament, Luke 12, Jesus says, who are you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Are you telling me, Jesus, that my life isn't worth worrying about? Like, I shouldn't worry about these things? These are some significant things that I'm enduring in my life. What he's saying is that because he has done the work, you can put your trust in him. You don't have to rest that you're going to be paid back next week. You can rest that Jesus has done the work so that there is a hope and a future for you. I could go on and on. 2 Timothy 1.7, John 16.33. Uh, these are all incredible principles from the word of God and even promises but the fact remains that this is a challenging text today. Luke 11, or Hebrews 11, a very challenging text. And again, I would never want you to feel as though uh, Centerway doesn't care about your pain or that God is flipping about your situation. And so I, I want to encourage you to talk to God about this. To say, what does this look like in my life, God? In fact, as we prepare to respond to the word uh, through singing, uh, there's a question that we'd love for you to consider. Uh, we put up the application question for today. It looks like this. When will I take time this week to redefine a current difficulty? Now, we realize that if you took this, ver or this uh, question at face value, you could say, um, Wednesday. There, I did it. <laughs> We're good to go, right? Obviously, the heart behind this application question isn't that you would pick a time, but that you would actually connected with God. We worded it in such a way uh, that you might have accountability, that if you came with somebody or if you're involved in a circle, uh, you can have people around you that say, hey, when did you take time this week to redefine a current difficulty? Or when are you going to do that? All right, you let me know. I'll hold you accountable to that. The truth of the matter is, is that we can't just say cerebrally. Some of us maybe can, but I would venture to say that just about all of us can't go Oh, there we go. I read a great verse about difficulty. Now I don't feel so bad about the pain I'm going through. Some of you are going through the fight of your lives right now. I understand that. And the truth of the matter is, is that when we connect with a God who loves us, not a God who's apathetic, not a God who uh, is overbearing, is looking to judge you, but a God who sent his son, Jesus, to live your life and to die your death, when we connect with that God, we begin to realize that he is doing a work in us that's far greater than us. Far greater than us. Would you just bow your head and heart with me as we begin to prepare uh, ourselves for that response to this word? I'd love for you, even now, to make some margin in your life. To say, God, would you speak to me in this moment? Would you speak to me through these songs I'm about to sing? Would you allow me not to uh, allow uh, the pain of the difficulties I'm facing to get in the way of connection with, with you, God? Entering the, the holy of holies in a relationship and through a, an experience of worship. Heavenly Father, I, I pray right now that hearts that may be raw with the freshness of, of pain, Lord, hearts that may be uh, 
scarred over because the pain has just been ongoing week after week, year after year. God, hearts that are confused or are broken. Whatever situation we find our hearts in today, Lord, I pray that these hearts would be changed by your word, would be changed today by an encounter with the living God. I pray, Father, uh, that wherever we may be right now, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that our circumstances aren't about us, but they're leveraged for something greater. And in so doing, that you would bring a healing in our lives, that you would bring a healing of our hearts, Lord God. Father, we run to you. We don't hide our pain. We don't mask our situation. We don't sweep our difficulties under the rug, Lord God. We run to you, giving you our everything, our trials, our joys, our pain. And pray, oh God, that you would do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.